Welcome to the Insight Podcast. My guest today is James Hewitt. James is a human performance scientist, consultant, and keynote speaker. His mission is to empower you with science-based tools to improve your well-being and performance. I talked to James about the importance of sleep and its effect on well-being, the role of caffeine, alcohol, sunlight, and wearables in sleep, simple changes you can make to improve your sleep, how stress affects us, how you can shift your mindset and improve your performance through self-talk, and much more. Enjoy the episode. So James, what do we now know in the field of human performance that say we didn't know around five years ago, um, but it's been a real game changer? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, you sent me that in advance. So thank you. I had a little bit of time to ponder on it. And one of the things I was kind of debating with answering this question was how many things didn't we know five years ago uh, that have been a game changer relative to things that some people knew, but which weren't more commonly known? Mm. And, and I think that um, the topic I've kind of selected is a mixture of both of those. And people probably won't be surprised to hear that I'm going to say sleep. Mm. And it's about recognizing the importance of sleep in cognitive performance and overall well-being. And um, I don't know whether you want me to just get going, because once you get me talking about this, I won't stop. So um, I'm very happy to just get to tell you why I think that's the case, if you want to take it that way. No, please do, because I think it's a topic, like you said, that people are just so much more aware of, maybe thanks to the work of uh, Dr. Matthew Walker and others in this field that have recognised that sleep is so important. It's not, you know, that... um, that outlook of our oh, sleep when I'm dead and, and whatever, just go, 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 mm. go. Now, mm. now we recognize just how vital sleep is to performance. But I want to hear from, from someone, uh, you know, in your position with your experience and the research you've done. Well, why, why is it that you've chosen sleep then? Tell us. Yeah. So, well, I mean, my fascination, I've always had a curiosity about sleep. Mm. I think there was a moment for me where um, I was speaking at a conference, ironically, probably about five, six years ago, maybe a bit longer than that. And and I'd looked into sleep uh, in relation to athletic performance in particular, recognising its importance there. It was on my radar kind of academically already. Um, but then I met um, a guy called Professor Stephen Lockley, who was speaking at a conference. Um, uh, we were both speaking there. And he's a professor of sleep and circadian rhythm at Harvard. Mm-hmm. Um, really smart guy. And he'd flown in from Boston and um, uh, uh, and uh, during the kind of the, the, the conference, there are a few moments where he was like, oh, I'm not going to have any, not having any coffee now. Um, you know, uh, uh, and I was like, okay. And he's like, well, I need to go back and have a nap now. I was like, oh, okay. And then he's like, well, yeah, well, I, I, he's wearing sunglasses at a really unusual time. Um, like when we first, uh, um, uh, kind of early in the morning. And, and so I was like, you know, Steve, what's this about? And he's like, what's well, my jet lag plan? Mm. And I said, what is a jet lag plan? Uh, I re- hadn't really come across this concept before. And it turns out that, um, it's possible to, um, very precisely, uh, influence our circadian rhythm, our body clock, by exposing ourselves to light or avoiding it at the right time or the wrong time, using caffeine, sleep and wait times. So you can actually reduce the amount of time it takes to adapt to a new time zone very significantly. And Steve actually developed these programs for people like NASA astronauts who are flying across the country in the world, uh, Formula One drivers, um, as well as all kinds of other um, very in-depth academic research. 
And it just got me curious. And so I started to talk to him, work with him. Um, he gave me some fantastic insights, kind of sent me down rabbit holes in terms of literature that I read and just started to come to appreciate how fundamental sleep is to every aspect of well-being and performance. Now, we know that sleep is vital across animal species. And we know this because when animals are deprived of sleep for long enough, they die. Um, but the interesting thing is, is that while it's evident, it's clear that sleep is essential, we're still learning why this is the case. Mm. Um, and, and I think it's still a challenge because many of us are looking for ways to extract more out of each day, you know, whether that's due to work commitments or because we want more time for ourselves. Uh, and as you kind of alluded to, there's this idea of, you know, well, I'll sleep when I'm dead. And actually some very well-known people have suggested that cutting sleep might be a good time to achieve the aim of getting more out of the day. It was this great quote by Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Terminator. And he said something along the lines of, there are 24 hours in a day. You just sleep six hours and have 18 hours left. And if you need more time, you should just sleep faster. <laughs> and it's like such an Arnie thing to say, isn't it? And you know, Arnold, he got some things about, a lot of things right in life, clearly very successful guy, but he is dead wrong about sleep. Yeah. And, and there's this great study from 2004 and they demonstrated that sleeping for six hours per night for two weeks results in declines in cognitive performance equivalent to being sleep deprived for an entire night. And it's interesting because um, they also got people to measure their sleepiness um, using something called the, the Stanford Sleepiness Scale um, mm. in that. And basically, people then self-report how sleepy they felt um, and to an extent how impaired they felt, how, uh, how much their alertness had dropped. And the interesting thing was, was that even though their cognitive performance was as bad as being entirely sleep deprived for a night after those two weeks of sleeping for six hours per night, they were unaware of their diminished cognitive performance. So they didn't feel that much more sleepy than if they'd slept for eight hours per night. And they actually separated the people into groups in their study to be able to, uh, to conclude that. So essentially that impaired performance had become the new normal. Mm. And actually that's the case for many of us. And unfortunately, you know, many of us fall into that trap. We don't sleep enough. We convince ourselves we're okay. Now there are exceptions. There's a small proportion of the population who can function adequately on around six hours per day. And that seems to relate to this, what's called a polymorphism. So a genetic mutation on a particular gene called DC2 that's involved in the function of our body clock. But it's estimated that less than 1% of the population are true short sleepers. And I often say to people, you know, if you think you're one of these short sleepers, just pay attention to what happens when you go on vacation, when you go on holiday, and you actually get to sleep as much as you like. You know, most people then start sleeping more like seven hours. If people have got this gene, strongly heritable, There'll be people in their family who uh, who have that same tendency to, to be short sleepers, and it's likely something that emerged in childhood. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, it's uh, very early in life. Um, you, you weren't sleeping, and it kind of continued. So the bottom line is most people can't cheat on sleep, but more than one in three people still don't get enough sleep. Yeah. Uh, and that does mean that they don't sleep for at least seven hours per night. And you know, it, it seems pretty clear that there is this threshold. So adequate sleep is basically seven to nine hours, but... When we don't sleep for at least seven hours per night, we can see in very good experimental studies that um, you start to see these worsening deficits in cognitive function and eventually breakdowns in all kinds of psychophysiological systems, so brain, mind, and, and body. And mm. um, we also know, for example, that if you were to restrict sleep for four and a half hours for four nights, that can reduce insulin sensitivity. So that's a marker of your basic, basically your metabolic health, how well your body can kind of process the fuel and the food that you put into it in a healthy way. Um, it reduces insulin sensitivity when you sleep for four and a half hours for four nights by about 16%. 
relative to normal sleep. Now, to put that in context, that's a decline in metabolic health that you'd usually see in someone who is either obese or 10 to 20 years older. So basically, if you're not sleeping enough, you're aging your metabolism. And also, there's some interesting uh, kind of correlates with not sleeping enough that we often don't think about. So if you've ever lied awake in bed, feeling stressed, staring at the ceiling, wondering why you can't get to sleep, you know that stress interferes with sleep. Mm. I think a lot of people have had that experience. However, fewer people recognize that not sleeping enough is anxiogenic. That means it actually generates stress. And in fact, increased anxiety, that's negative stress, is one of the most frequent, frequently reported what we call neurobehavioral issues associated with sleep loss. So we end up getting caught in this vicious cycle where stress interferes with sleep, which then generates more stress. And sometimes, unfortunately, some of the things that we do are actually um, perpetuating that cycle. And, uh, and, and we need to address some of them to actually be able to break it off and, and start to get more adequate sleep again. Yeah. So what are some of those things that people are doing that they perhaps shouldn't be doing? And are there any quick wins that can, can help people sleep better and break that cycle as well? Yeah, so the quickest wins are really around what I describe as sleep hygiene. Right. And um, so these are simple things we can do kind of in our environment or our behavior to try to um, uh, improve our sleep. Mm. And so my understanding, am I correct in thinking that quite a few of your listeners are teachers? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So, well, um, one thing I know about teachers and, you know, my wife working in a school as well is a lot of teachers drink a lot of coffee <laughs> and maybe that's a massive kind of stereotype and mischaracterization, but um, uh, it seems that there is quite a lot of coffee and tea drinking. Well, I kind of, I, I back up that rule for sure. Three or four for me. Okay. <laughs> well, we're, we're, th thanks for confirming my bias. Um, but it, it seems that unfortunately caffeine, um, it's got lots of positive effects. Um, it's a, it's quite a powerful stimulant. Mm. It helps us to stay alert. And actually, particularly when we're a bit sleep deprived, it can be very, very helpful in supporting and even improving cognitive performance. The problem with caffeine is it's got quite a long half-life. And so what's actually happening in our brain is that when we get sleepy, um, there's an increase in concentration of a molecule called adenosine in our brain. And these adenosine molecules attached to receptors in our brain and basically make us feel sleepy. It actually slows down our brain. And what caffeine does, the molecules of caffeine from tea or coffee, they block those receptor sites in our brain. They stop the adenosine attaching and it helps us to stay alert. It stops that sleep pressure. You can imagine it like, or the other way, like a, a sand timer kind mm -hmm. of filling up. And so um, that's great when we want to stay awake, but it means that some of those caffeine molecules can still be hanging around at the end of the day, stopping that sleep pressure increasing, stopping us from getting to sleep. And so we need to provide enough time for those uh, that caffeine to be metabolized, for those receptor sites in our brain to free up so the adenosine can hook in and help that sleep pressure to naturally increase. So as a general rule of thumb, one of the things that I'd say is stop drinking caffeine after midday. Mm. And if you don't believe me, then try it and see what effect it has. And one of my, kind of the best things I ever found was a decent decaf coffee that I actually liked. And uh, it was actually decaffeinated with like, for example, a Swiss water method, which doesn't use any chemicals. If you want to get really geeky about that, and, <laughs> you know, we can, we can talk about decaffeination methods another time. So, so there's caffeine. The other thing about um, uh, that can really help actually is um, just simply trying to go to bed and wake up at a regular time mm. each day. So if we don't do that, we're actually forcing our body clock, our circadian rhythm to adjust constantly. So we're actually kind of inducing a state of jet lag. 
um, a little bit of jet lag. And actually, it's described as social jet lag. So rather than traveling, it's induced by our environment and different, uh, uh, different stimuli in terms of how we're living and how we're working. So regular sleep and wake time. And um, the other thing uh, that we can do is related to light. So we often don't think about the importance of light, but our body clock, our circadian rhythm, is not actually precisely 24 hours. Sometimes it's a bit longer, some people's are a bit shorter. So it actually requires light exposure every day to train it. Um, and if we don't get that light exposure, we get totally disrupted. And they've done some really interesting experiments where they put people in caves, for example, without any light to see what happens. And they do get out of sync with the Earth's natural daylight cycle. And these, these cues that help to entrain our body clock are called Zeitgebers. Mm. Light is the most effective Zeitgeber. And so um, what we can do is if we try to prioritize getting some bright light during the day, within the first two hours of waking up, that can really help to provide that cue that it's morning. And so even on a cloudy day, like it is here in Cambridge, where I'm based at the moment, um, it's, uh, there's enough bright light out there to provide a really good cue and actually a lot more bright light than you get in your home. And then later in the day, what we want to do is to try to avoid that bright light. So particularly in the two or three hours before bed, really dim the lights. Try and, if you can, adjust the, the kind of the, the colors so they're warmer, like more orange. And what that's going to do is avoid suppressing melatonin uh, and also help you to then start that sleep pressure to increase and for you to kind of prepare yourself for sleep. Now, the good news is sometimes it's inevitable. Again, you know, many people in many professions end up, unfortunately, having to work and do things on their laptop late into the evening. Yeah. Now, in an ideal world, we wouldn't do that within two hours of going to bed. The good news is it, is it does, does seem that if we get sufficient amounts of bright light during the day, that can offset some of that bright light later on. So I'd really encourage people to be getting that bright light within those first two hours. So it could just be going for a walk. Maybe you park your car slightly further away from the office or the school or whatever, um, or you know, take the dog for a walk, or even just you know, put your tea or coffee first thing in the morning in a kind of takeout mug and have a little walk around the block. And you'd be really surprised at the effect that that can have even just 10 minutes of getting that bright light. So they'd be my top three, really. It'd be stopping caffeine after midday. Yeah. It'd be making sure that your sleep time was as regular as possible. So go to bed and wake up at as regular time as possible and then get some bright light in the morning and then also um, uh, avoid that bright light later on. And then finally, just make sure your room at night is as dark and as quiet as possible. Um, and if you're interested in looking at light exposure, you can actually get an app. There's various apps. There's one called Light Meter. Um, they're not very expensive and they're not 100% accurate, but you can use your phone's camera to measure light intensity in different places. And um, uh, uh, it's uh, something that, you know, I can share some links with you and that kind of thing afterwards if that's of interest to people. Yeah, for sure. And that 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 app I have downloaded recently and I can't believe that it, I, I got to this age before realizing this. Um, but, you know, I've, I've heard a lot about um you know, light exposure in the morning and, and the effects on the circadian rhythm and, and things. And when you download that app and yeah, you turn it on when you're inside in a really brightly lit room and you think, wow, it's really bright in here. But then you can, you take it outside on a cloudy day and it's what, is it 10 times, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's 10 exactly. times as light, isn't it? And then you go, okay, right. That, that just makes it so visual. Um, and completely backs up what you're saying about getting outside, even on a cloudy day, is mm. is what you want to do. But those those three tips are fantastic, and I think for people that um, perhaps are struggling with sleep, those are things that are what they're, they're actionable. They're free, um, really, really quick wins, aren't they? We're not talking about mm. buying a mattress for five hundred pounds and <laughs> things like this. Exactly. They they are they're really really practical. Excuse me. I live near a hospital, so an ambulance just got went past if you heard it. No worries. <laughs> um, two questions I want to ask them is 
What about those people? And I know some people like this that say, well, I, ca- I can drink caffeine though. It, it just doesn't affect me. I still sleep really well. I'll have a coffee at eight or nine in the evening and it doesn't affect me and I'm fine. What do you say to those people? Well, I mean, it's true that some people are faster caffeine metabolizers than right. others. And some people, are, some people are more or less sensitive to caffeine than others. Also, it seems that some people are more or less sensitive to actually adenosine building up in your brain. So um, uh, there's actually some indications that people who are more early birds, Mm. so people, because there's this idea of chronotype, that actually um, some of us have got this tendency to feel more alert and awake early in the day, some later in the day, um, some like in the evening, they kind of wake up and they are super alert later in the day and everyone else falls in between. And according to some evidence, there's different proportions, but about 25% of people seem to be these more early types. They like the mornings, 25% these more late types and everyone else in between. And there's some evidence to indicate that actually um, the early types are more sensitive to the increasing ad- uh, in adenosine. Mm. So that means when this adenosine builds up in their brain, um, they're, um, they're more sensitive to it. So they feel more sleepy earlier. And um, so there's a possibility that there's also a link with um, uh, caffeine there, where you know if you were really sensitive to adenosine, then even if some of that adenosine was kind of being blocked by the caffeine, um, in addition to perhaps if you ended up in a situation where you're a fast metabolizer uh, of caffeine, you kind of got rid of it quick, mm. you're also very sensitive to adenosine. It's not going to disrupt your sleep as much as someone who is a really slow metabolizer of caffeine. So it takes a long time to get rid of it, to free up those sites. And someone who also might be less sensitive to the um, kind of accumulation of that adenosine. So it's clear that like with any with any kind of statistic, there's this normal distribution, basically. And you're going to have most people who have a, can massively improve their sleep by avoiding caffeine earlier in the day. Um, uh, and then you're going to have some people who can't drink any, otherwise it screws their sleep completely <laughs> at one end of that curve. And then there's some people who kind of pretty much get away with it. Right. But what I would say is that um, a lot of people who think they're getting away with it actually um, aren't. They're, that impaired performance, that sleepiness has just become a new normal for them. So I do encourage people to do an experiment, you know, to maybe have a period of time where you stop caffeine earlier and don't just kind of compress all your caffeine earlier in the day because then you're just getting this huge dose, which still has to be metabolized. And, you know, it's still, you, you start from this higher point and there's still going to be a load left. But try and do it sensibly. You know, so you stop caffeine after midday so you are reducing your consumption as well. Mm. And do an experiment for a couple of weeks and see see what effect it has. It's one of the things where, um, you know, where wearables can be quite helpful. I'm not, you know, I, I use wearables in my PhD research and I'm a big fan of them in some ways. There's some downsides as well, which maybe we could touch on. But um, but actually there's a, you know, there's various different wearables available. Some of them have these journal features. So you can actually track when you use caffeine or not, for example, and then do that for a month. And at the end of the month, see whether that caffeine intake has been positively, negatively, or not correlated with your sleep duration, mm. sleep efficiency, for example, as well. But you don't need a wearable. You can just get a sense. You could just even get a notepad and note down when you went to sleep and when you woke up, um, and that wouldn't cost anything. But I do encourage people to do an experiment and make sure that you're not just tricking yourself because human beings are really, really good at deceiving themselves, particularly in relation to things that they like. And I really like coffee. <laughs> and as I said, thankfully, I found a decaf, decaf varieties that I like. But you know, for years, I would have a double espresso after dinner. And it was kind of my thing. We lived in France for, for six and a half years. Um, you know, it's, it's a big part of the culture there. And, um, uh, and I was convinced that it didn't really affect my sleep. It was only until my sleep started to get screwed up by other things 
like kids, for example, having two young kids, that I was like, I need to find ways to improve my sleep. And actually, I started to realize that actually caffeine was having a negative effect. So, um, so yeah, you know, there's always going to be exceptions to the rule. Human beings are interesting like that. We have a really diverse mix. But generally speaking, I encourage people to give it a go. And most people have a positive effect from stopping caffeine earlier. Yeah. I think that's that kind of self-experimentation is, is, is really interesting um, because we are so individual, aren't we? And so why not just try it and not kind of go with the flow and not just kind of carry on with habits that you've always had and just think, well, like you said, you, you adjust to the new normal and think, well, this is how tired mm-hmm. I am and, and it's okay. Um, this is how stressed I am, whatever. But I like that, the self-experimentation. And I've tried it a little bit as well. I try to drink decaf, maybe, maybe not 12, but maybe more like 2 p.m. I might have kind of my last coffee just after lunch. Okay. About one. Yeah. And, and I think I, I do think I noticed the difference, but I notice even more of a difference when I just switch to decaf completely. And I'm like, why don't mm-hmm. I just do that all the time and maybe just save the caffeinated coffees for just before a workout or just before something else mm-hmm. where I need to focus. Um, so you've kind of, you've inspired me to, to do a bit of experimentation again on myself and, and look back at that. That's great. Um, The other one question I have to ask you then about sleep is alcohol. I suppose that some people see um, a drink in the evening, say 7, 8 p.m., as something that helps them relax, calm down, and induce a better sleep. Is this the case? Mm. Is it complicated? What can you tell me about that? Yeah, it's a good, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, so actually, um, so I mentioned, I'm just coming to the end of our PhD research at the moment. And the main focus of that research was on the relationship between well-being and performance in always on knowledge work. So work where we think for a living and particularly among people who really struggle to switch off. You know, people often say you end up, you know, you end up researching the things that you're, that kind of apply to yourself that you struggle with. And it's definitely the case for me. You know, I really struggle to switch my brain off. And you know, by the pace that I talk, you probably can guess uh, already without me saying that. But um, so many people struggle with this. There's various different data points out there. Some from a few years ago suggest that about 70% of the people say that they struggle to switch off from work. Um, and so they experience this thing called perseverative cognition. Our brain just keeps going. Now, one of the things about alcohol is, is that um, it's, a, it's a sedative and it also has what's called a biphasic effect. So in addition to be a sedative, funnily enough, it also has a stimulant effect. And um, often what happens at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is two things. We're trying to switch off our brain, but sometimes we feel a bit low mood. And so we're also trying to do something called mood repair. And one of the reasons why alcohol is so effective is that during the time that your blood alcohol concentration is increasing after you've had that drink, then it's actually facilitating mood repair. It actually boosts positive mood. And then once the blood alcohol concentration starts to drop, once your body metabolizes the alcohol, that's where your sedative effect really starts to kick in. And so when it acts as a sedative, you kind of psychologically detach. You exp- it, it basically switches off your brain and you um, stop that, what we call perseverative cognition, that kind of the whirring of the cogs. So alcohol is very effective at helping you to do that in the short term. Also, alcohol has the effect of decreasing sleep latency. So that means it actually decreases mm. the time it takes to get to sleep. And you've probably all experienced that. You have a glass of wine, you go to bed, head hits the pillow. The other thing that alcohol does is that it can actually even increase the amount of deep sleep in the first part of the night. So all of these factors together lead to what's called an positive expectancy beliefs. So we have these positive beliefs associated with alcohol for very good reason. The problem is, is that the downsides of alcohol are delayed. 
And so we often don't necessarily link them. So while alcohol shuts off our brain, if we want to kind of simplify it, it actually um, increases the activation, prolongs the activation of our body. So it, um, uh, because our body has to really work harder to metabolize the alcohol, to get rid of it, because it's not very good for us, unfortunately. Um, and so what we see is that there's a dose response relationship between how much alcohol we drink and um, decreasing recovery during the night. So um, poor physiological recovery. And so we mentioned this thing called heart rate variability. And so heart rate variability describes the difference in time between each heartbeat. And, and what it's actually doing is it's giving us a window into what's going on with our nervous system. Because there's a nerve called the vagal nerve, and it makes up about 75% of what's called our rest and digest nervous system. So the parasympathetic nervous system. You can think about it as a part of the nervous system that's responsible for kind of recovery, essentially. And so that vagus nerve actually is involved in the control of our heartbeat. And so when that vagus nerve is really active and happy, then what you actually see is this greater difference in time between each heartbeat because the nerve is responding to all the stuff that's going on in our environment um, really kind of precisely. And so you see a lot of variability, actually. And you can imagine it's almost like having a driver behind the wheel who can apply the brake in just the right place at just the right time with the perfect amount of pressure on the pedal. And so when we see someone's got high heart rate variability, we know that um, uh, we, or we've got a good indication that they've got a lot, they've got the resources to respond and react to things that are going on. They can absorb stress. They're well recovered. You see in athletes, for example, when the heart rate variability is, is relatively higher, they're ready to go in training, generally speaking. When it's lower, it's depressed. It means that basically that sympathetic nervous system is overcoming the parasympathetic. The parasympathetic break isn't able to slow it down. And that's associated with impaired recovery. Things are worse. So what we see with alcohol is that even though it can help you to get to sleep more quickly, um, it might even increase a bit of deep sleep, it really ruins your physiological recovery during the night. The other thing that it does is because it's a sedative, um, it has an effect on our brain and it destroys what's called the sleep architecture. Um, and so when we sleep, we sleep in kind of roughly 90 minute phases um, and we go through this non-REM deep sleep and this REM rapid eye movement sleep. Um, but the thing is, is that those sleep cycles are not distributed evenly. We actually end up getting most of our REM sleep later in the night and most of our deep sleep earlier. But because alcohol increases the amount of deep sleep, this deep sleep phase basically mm. lasts for longer than it should. And we end up getting very little REM sleep. And the REM sleep that we do get is often a bit messed up. And the REM sleep in particular seems to be really important to help our brain recover. But also it seems to be associated with socio-emotional processing. So the processing of social emotions. And so what we see, unfortunately, is that when you drink alcohol, you might get to sleep quicker. You might switch your brain off in the short term. But that, own, that also ruins your body's recovery. So you wake up feeling more tired. And it can actually increase the amount of stress we feel the next day. And so the problem is we get more stress the next day. And as I mentioned, that stress messes up our sleep. But also we're stressed. So at the end of the day, our brain is still going. We can't switch off. So what do we do? We drink some more. And unfortunately, what happens is often we get up, we're stressed, we're a bit tired, we have a coffee. So we have another coffee because we're tired. And then we can't switch off because we've drank too much coffee. So we have a glass of wine. And then the glass of wine messes up our sleep. So yeah. you kind of get where I'm going with this. So unfortunately, alcohol is uniformly bad for sleep. And um, my kind of recommendation, other than not drink it, would be right. stop drinking earlier. <laughs> that doesn't mean drink at breakfast. Um, but, um, 
certainly not for anyone in the teaching profession, please. Um, uh, but um, uh, but also, um, you know, I think essentially I, I enjoy alcohol. And, you know, I, uh, I, I mentioned we lived in France for six and a half years. You know, there's basically three major food groups there, alcohol, caffeine and nicotine. And um, uh, I don't do the nicotine bit, but I certainly love the, the, the alcohol and the caffeine bit. And um, so uh, I like drinking alcohol. I really like to have a nice beer. But the way that I approach it now is that mm. I drink when it's worth it. So great context you know, with friends, with family, great wine, a really nice beer. What I've eliminated is the habitual drinking. So, you know, uh, and also trying to eliminate the drinking where trying to find other ways to help me to detach and switch off and maybe pay a bit of attention to say, if I feel like I need this drink to switch off, is there something else driving this that I might be able to fix? And I recognize that, you know, it's easy to say that life is tough for a lot of people and it can just feel like the thing we need, but it's not a long-term fix. Um, and uh, if we can find ways to reduce our alcohol consumption, often eliminate it, and um, it will have it can have a huge positive benefit for our well-being and performance. So yeah, that's my that's, that's <laughs> yeah, my TED talk. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for listening. Well, extremely valuable. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Uh, yeah, insightful and, and concise. I just think it's so important to to get that message out there. So yeah, thanks for sharing. You're welcome. Right. <laughs> Maybe we can move into a bit of mindset then. I feel like mm. we've we've covered a lot of sleep and. It, it was great. It, it was it was so good to hear about those different aspects of sleep and, and the different influences, both positive and negative. Um, and I wonder if the bridge into mindset is what I'd like to talk to you about is kind of mindset around sleep. Because you mentioned about the um, your sleepiness scale and, and how much you rate your sleepiness and how we might get that wrong. Mm. Um, but I suppose, well, I don't know if it's a but, but 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 I think I've also heard about people's mindset around sleep and how if they do think they're well rested, then they can still kind of perform. Um, I'm not sure if I'm getting that completely wrong now, but kind of I guess they've they've done comparisons with whatever wearable where, uh, wearable they've they've got attached to their wrist or wherever wherever it is, and actually the wearable might say that they've had some terrible sleep, and so they think, oh well, I must have had some terrible sleep, and you know then that affects them for the rest of the day. Mm. Whereas actually, if they hadn't checked it and kind of just relied on how, how they felt intrinsically they might have felt a bit better. I think I've said that in a very kind of muddy and not clear way at all. But do you see what I mean Absolutely. about the link between mindset and sleep? Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, so I don't know whether we can briefly talk about that, but then kind of quickly go into some some um, some of my questions around mindset. Or if you think, you know, let, let's talk about mindset and sleep a bit more, then we can do that as well. I'll, I'll leave that up to you. No, I think that's a great segue. Very very well done. And actually, you summed it up well. Essentially, what you're talking about is this notion of placebo sleep, yeah. which relates to our beliefs. And so that does strongly link with mindset. And we can talk about beliefs, the things we tell ourselves. There's some great kind of threads we can pull on there. But in relation to sleep, um, they've done some really interesting studies where they demonstrate that our beliefs about sleep influence our performance, regardless of whether those beliefs are true or not. And it relates to this phenomenon called placebo sleep. And so essentially, they've done these deception studies where they give people false feedback. And what they've shown is that relative to a control condition, and I'm kind of just synthesizing a few different studies here, but relative to a control condition, if you tell someone that they slept longer and better than they did, they perform better. Interesting. Right. If you tell someone that they um, slept shorter and worse than they actually did, they perform worse. 
regardless of what the truth is. So I wasn't making and it up. Some, I wasn't making it no, up. <laughs> no, and there's some great placebo sleep studies. The interesting thing is we don't know how long that effect endures for, mm. and it's not going to last forever. You know, there's, that's pretty clear. You can't just keep telling yourself every day. But there's a takeaway there, which is that our beliefs matter. And actually, one of the, the ways that I operationalize those findings in my life and work is that if I know that my sleep's been bad, you know, uh, thankfully our kids are a bit older now, so they sleep through the night. Um, but there were many years they didn't. And there were days when I woke up and I knew my sleep had been terrible because kids had woken up loads. Mm. I wouldn't look at my sleep data. There was actually a period of years where even though I was researching wearable use, um, academically and using it in my professional work, I didn't use one because I just didn't want to know. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so there's a case for that. And now you know I'm, I've got a trip coming up uh, with many time zone, uh, big time zone difference. And for the first few days, I won't look at my sleep. I'll be interested to see afterwards because um, it'll only make you feel worse. So our beliefs do really matter and can profoundly influence our well-being performance. Mm. So uh, that's a good way we can maybe talk about what that means in in other contexts as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I suppose it's a bit of a broad. Question, but how, how then does mindset play a role in performance in other aspects of our lives? Mm. Is it massive? Is that, can you put a percentage yeah. on it? I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess, I mean, you know, we can talk about some percentages and maybe bring it into practice in terms of uh, how that relates to, you know, self-talk. Right. And, you know, I think that's something we we're going to talk about later and we can get in some, some numbers, maybe if we want to talk about self-talk specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but, you know, mindset is, is fascinating. And you know, my background in sport, um, so I study organizational psychology now. The focus of my work is really on workplace well-being. But this journey for me started when I was actually a full-time racing cyclist. And um, I uh, it was fascinated in how I could optimize my own performance and use technology to be able to do that and recognize increasingly that mindset was a big part of that mm. and ended up setting up my own coaching business when I became a failed athlete and uh, as, as many people did and ended up most of my clients were business people, very busy business people who had very demanding careers and, and outside of that work, they pursued very challenging cycling events. But you know, one of the, uh, I've often thought about in many ways that sport is one of the ultimate testing grounds for stress management Um, because every training session and competition is a stressor and even the most successful athletes will lose many more times than they win. Um, So they get these micro doses of failure. And it's interesting because in the immediate, you know, stress isn't necessarily good or bad. And that's one of the kind of, one of the points to make maybe that um, in the immediate aftermath of stress, performance drops, but if we've got enough resources available, we recover, we bounce back. Um, and and that's a really critical characteristic of resilient people, um, and and actually we can adapt and grow even stronger than we were before. And the evidence is really compelling that uh, we can achieve that in all kinds of contexts. You know, there was some studies done in a military context that found that it's possible for soldiers who um, you know have uh, the right resources and characteristics in place. And you know, this was about feeling a sense of purpose, for example, feeling engaged, being present in their daily life. People who enjoy what they do have meaningful relationships, mm. have this sense of measurable accomplishment. Um, that those characteristics, which we might potentially group under mindset, can achieve this supercompensation in response to stress um, and and grow back uh, even stronger. Um, but um, but to give you an example of what kind of a mindset might look like in sport and how it could be shifted. Um, you know, there's uh, a few years ago, um, I uh, interviewed a guy called Mika Hakkinen, a Formula One driver, while I was writing a book about sustainable high performance. And uh, Mika, you know, Formula One world champion, really interesting guy. Um, and during my interviews with him, um, he recounted this experience before a very wet edition of the Formula One Grand Prix in Adelaide. Mm. 
And um, he told me this story about how he woke up in the morning and looked outside the hotel window um, and on it was pouring with rain. You know, there were sheets of rain lashing on the build, uh, lashing the buildings outside. And you know, that's kind of a that's a scary thing to see. You know, Formula One motorsport in general is very dangerous anyway. Mm-hmm. In the wet, it's even worse. You know, you kind of uh, um, uh, in some ways because the control is so diminished. Uh, and it, many people would have been discouraged in that situation. But um, Mika was different and. If you've ever met him or heard him speak, he is a really interesting character, very positive, very kind of extrovert character, um, quite unusual for a Finn uh, in many <laughs> yeah. ways, you know, the Finnish people. But, um, but he said to me, he got this quote and I recorded it, thankfully, and wrote it down. And he said, I told myself and the team, I'm so happy it's raining. This is fantastic. And Mick is always saying this word fantastic. Um, and if you've, uh, you can imagine him saying it if you've heard him in an interview. Um, but um, this wasn't necessarily the part of the story that was most memorable to me because later he went on to describe this moment from the race. And he described this moment where he said he was approaching um, this corner mm. at 300 kilometers an hour. And because of the rain, there was zero visibility. Now, Formula One drivers, and I've had the privilege to work with several Formula One drivers and teams over the years, and um, they uh, rely on these kind of visual cues often to um, uh, determine their braking point. So the amazing thing about Formula One is you know, these cars have got so much downforce uh, the so much, uh, and mechanical grip as well that keeps them glued to the road. Um, they can brake so late. So if you see a video of it, you can't really get, uh, capture it on TV, uh, on TV that well. And you know I've never driven a Formula One car, so I don't know either, but they brake so late. They're going so fast for so long and they slow down so quickly. And they, requ- they rely on these very precise points and uh, these cues to to figure out where they need to break. And there's a lot of feel and there's a lot of kind of proprioception. You know, there's a, there's a sense internally of what's going on. And I mean, you can see this, and this is a slight tangent, but um, the best drivers, if you get them to uh, visualize a lap, so close their eyes and imagine they're driving it, and their visualized lap time will be within kind of tenths or even smaller proportions of a second to their actual lap time because they've just got such an amazing sense of time perception. Um, but anyway, regardless of that, he's going down this straight at 300 kilometers an hour, visibility zero. And of course, he didn't have these visual cues then. So he had to, in his words, guess the distance to the turn. Now, he didn't guess, actually. Um, what he did was he um, had to keep his steering wheel straight and count, because he knew exactly when he needed to turn. Mm. But he just had to count, and he had to rely on that self-belief that he knew that track better than anybody so that he could, he could find that point and turn in at 300 kilometers an hour. If you got that wrong, I mean, catastrophic, mm. 300 kilometers an hour into the barriers, potentially. I can't imagine what it would have been like to drive flat out with my vision completely obscured, relying on counting in my head to dr- judge the track position and trusting that I got the timing right um, uh, before I took the corner. But that conversation was one of the conversations that really sparked my interest in the idea that we can change our stress mindset maybe mm. and actually have a very different stress mindset to someone else in the same conditions. And you know, so as, as I said, you know, stress isn't necessarily good or bad. The problems often arise when we perceive stress as being beyond our capabilities. And that's where it leads to this negative stress or anxiety or concern, these unpleasant feelings and ultimately impaired performance. Um, but if we can manage it, and actually experience positive stress and get this sense that there's a good match between the demands and our capabilities, then actually stress can be positive. We might not even call it a stress, call it stress. We might say it's energizing, mm-hmm. for example. We might say we're excited. 
And, and actually, as I mentioned, you know, I think you were, we we're going to talk about self-talk and self-talk is one of the ways that we can start to shift that mindset. Um, and, uh, and that's something that, yeah, I'm, I'm very interested in. I think it can apply in both sporting and workplace contexts as well. Yeah. Well, how about we touch on that then? Or if there's any other aspects of this that you would recommend or approaches, how can we flip our kind of approach to stress and our kind of beliefs around stress? How can we view it as more positive? Is, is there ways mm. to do that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think I mean, one of the things that I would encourage you to do is start to pay attention to your inner monologue. Mm. How are you explaining things and how are you talking to yourself? Um, and uh, you know, you might have seen me post about this recently. I think you, you mentioned it in one of the messages that we exchanged before this podcast, Sam. But um, if you've ever watched sport, I often encourage people to pay attention to the interviews with the winners and losers mm. that followed the event and, um, and listen to how they explain what happened. Um, and I've had the privilege to work with a lot of different athletes over the years, even though most 99% of my work is in, the, in a workplace context now. And I'm still a big cycling fan, um, even though I didn't get to ride the Tour de France. I had the privilege of riding full-time for several years. And then people who are actually good ended up being professional cyclists at the top level. And uh, so I watched them and you know, say to my kids, oh, I, I used to race with him when we were you know, 16. <laughs> and um, and well, they're like, shut up, dad. <laughs> um, no, they're not that rude. They're, they're great kids. But anyway, um, um, so I'm a bit of a cycling geek and uh, the 97th edition of the Tour de France started in Rotterdam uh, in the Netherlands. It started with this, um, uh, it was a time trial, it was about nine kilometers. Um, and this is a race where you're solo against the clock. And it ended up being won by this Swiss rider called Fabian Cancellara. Um, and he gets, his, his nickname is Spartacus often. And um, he's retired now, but he was often celebrated for his mental strength and his mindset. And he won that race with a, uh, he finished in exactly 10 minutes, no seconds more, no seconds less, 10 minutes. And, you know, I was interested in the question, how important do you think his mental skills and self-talk were for that performance? And this is where we can talk about some percentages to get to your earlier question. Mm. Well, there was a study done back in 2015 that found that cyclists who use motivational self-talk with phrases. So for example, if they, if you're working really hard, you might, if you've been for a run, maybe there's some people listening who did the London Marathon on Sunday, who knows, but um, there's that feeling sometimes you're like, oh, I've worked too hard. Maybe you felt it in a spin class or on your peloton. Yeah, you're in an interval and you've gone out too hard and you're like, I don't know whether I'm going to be able to keep going. Well, they found that's a very common experience for endurance athletes. And what they found was that if athletes shifted that inner monologue, that self-talk from things like I've worked too hard, instead to phrases that they actually said to themselves, like I can manage my energy until the end, they could improve their performance. In fact, they tested their performance over a 10 kilometer time trial. So pretty similar to Spartacus and found that their performance improved by 13 to 71 seconds in some cases. Now, this isn't a perfect comparison, but um, if Spartacus had been 13 seconds slower, so the lower end of that improvement range, when he did that time trial uh, in Rotterdam, that prologue, and um, he wouldn't have won, he would have finished third. Right. Now, if he'd finished 71 seconds slower, he would have finished 133rd. Crazy. So the words we use really matter. Um, you know, there's some, to try and make this practical, and you know, there's some other studies that have illustrated this principle and explore what might be happening. And there was some done by a very famous psychologist. Some people would call him the father of positive psychology, uh, a guy called uh, Martin Seligman. Mm. 
And he did this really interesting study on explanatory style. And what he was trying to do was explore whether the way, again, the athletes explain their performance could predict their performance in the future. And this notion of explanatory style transcends sport. And it basically suggests that we've got a choice in responding to events with optimism or pessimism. And that can change our, our response uh, to that. And so basically, he defined this taxonomy of three different explanatory styles. So the first is stable versus unstable. So did people see um, what they experienced as temporary or permanent? Um, so if it was an athlete, did they say this last race didn't go well, which is you'd call that un unstable and optimistic? So yeah, just the last race, not a big deal. Or did they have a bad performance and say, I will never do well in races like this? Stable and pessimistic. Uh, okay. Now, how many of us have done that in a workplace context? You know, you've had a bad, maybe you had a bad lesson as a teacher. Maybe you had a meeting which you were supposed to lead and you feel like you totally screwed up in a different workplace context. And at the end of it, you're just like, oh, I'm just rubbish at meetings. I'm rubbish at reading meetings. Pessimistic and stable. Whereas you can just say, that meeting didn't go well. Unstable, optimistic. There's an inference there that things can be better. The second explanatory style was specific versus global. And in an athletic context, this was about, did they perceive setbacks as affecting other unrelated areas of their lives? Mm. So for instance, did they say, for example, if it was a, um, a cyclist getting to the end of a race, did they say, oh, I, I started my sprint too late this time? So that's very specific and optimistic. You know, so they didn't win because other people started sprinting. They didn't get out in front in time. You know, there's something they can do, do about it there. Um, or did they say, you know, I, I just don't try hard enough. I'm lazy. Global, pessimistic. It wasn't about this athlete's sprinting performance specifically. It's about who they were as a person. Mm. And there's nothing they can do about that. And again, is there a way that in terms of our mindset and in the monologue, we can think about that specific versus global kind of aspect of explanatory style? So you know, when you experience a setback, there's a disappointment. Try to be specific and identify the things that went wrong, but the things you can change, rather than basically talking yourself down and telling yourself that you are a terrible person. Um, uh, it's not global to your entire life. It's it's maybe, for example, yeah, I didn't get the timings quite right there. Maybe I should have planned a little bit more. Maybe I was a little bit underprepared. Or maybe it's just, you know what? I had a bad day. Um, thirdly, there's this idea of things being internal or external. And so this is about to what degree do we blame ourselves relative to other people, uh, circumstances and, and other factors. And you've got to be a bit careful with this one um, because, you know, for instance, an athlete might say something like, I'm just too slow, which is internal and pessimistic, rather than uh, my teammate was too slow in the changeover in the relay race, um, which is external optimistic. The problem is, is that if we take this to the extreme, we just end up blaming other people instead of taking responsibility ourselves. But the evidence seems to indicate that if those first two are calibrated correctly, mm. so the first two being that stable versus unstable balance. So ideally, if we're identifying things that are changeable, with, and, and they're optimistic. So saying things like, for example, oh, just this meeting didn't go well. It's not that I never do well in meetings. If the second area is calibrated, the specific versus global. So rather than seeing the setbacks as affecting every area of our life, we're like, well, you know, it was just this meeting. Overall, I'm, I'm pretty good at my job, um, but maybe I should have just like prepared a bit better, or we identify something specific rather than global that we can actually do. If those two are calibrated correctly, we tend to get the right balance between the internal and the external attribution. So we recognize that balance between the things that we could have done better 
and also recognize that sometimes it isn't our fault. Mm. Um, and uh, But it's important to get that balance right so that we don't end up either on one hand just becoming a victim or on the other hand, you just blaming ourselves for everything um, and being a bit of a Eeyore. Um, but, um, but interestingly, you know, um, these optimistic explanatory styles, if we can get in the right side of those, seem to appear to improve resilience, help us to recover from setbacks more effectively, and it seems to be able to apply to our sport and our professional life, uh, to, to a sporting life or a professional life kind of equally. Um, and, um, and yeah, there's lots we could talk about there. And, you know, th- I've got some examples as well of maybe how that would, uh, work in a, in a business context, but, but I'll pause and, and let you kind of maybe reflect and, <laughs> and respond to no, that. I mean, what, what can I add other than, you know, I, I love links between sport and, and real life. Um, so I think it's so cool how you, uh, bridge that gap. And like you said, sport is just a great teacher, isn't it? Um, exercise is a great teacher. It can teach us so much about, um, performance and, and self-talk. So I, I just loved it. I was just kind of enthralled listening to you talk about that. Um, and yeah, so it's all about kind of how we are talking to ourselves, being specific, being optimistic. And that balance is interesting is it between internal and external. Like you said, if we, we don't want to constantly look outside and blame others, but also we don't want to mm. beat ourselves so much and always say, oh, it's just me. I'm useless. So is this a case then for, for people to practice this? Should they be, what, like talking to themselves in a mirror? Should they be writing it down? <laughs> how, how, how can you go yeah. about um, practicing self-talk, positive self-talk well, it, or useful self-talk? It does seem that, it's a, I think that's a great question. How do you make it practical? I, it does seem that actually saying these things to yourself can be helpful. Out loud? And, um, yeah, okay. out loud. And um, But you could also link it with writing. So again, in a sporting context, there's often this idea of uh, visualization mm. and uh, a mental rehearsal. So if you've ever watched a skier, you know, I love skiing and uh, I advise a, a ski academy as part of the work that I do. And um, I'm an okay skier. I'm not great. <laughs> but I love watching really good skiers. And before they race, you can see them mentally rehearsing the route. Mm. And uh, But when you're getting an athlete to prepare a, um, their, their mental rehearsal, sometimes we get them to prepare scripts. And as part of that, they might also write down some of the things that they'll say to themselves to help them to shift their mindset sometimes, think about the things they can control. We rarely think about these pre-performance routines in our everyday life. Mm. And so one of the things you could actually do, and not everyone's going to feel like this is the thing for them, and that's fine. Some people might think it's a bit cheesy or corny or they just don't want to do it, and that's okay. But some people find that actually having a kind of little script, a pre-performance routine for different scenarios can be really helpful particularly if they've got this like dominant cycle of thinking where, you know, you start the day and it's like, oh, you know, I've got to do this again. You know, maybe the starting point is actually rather than thinking I've got to do it, you get to do it. Mm. So already there's a slightly more optimistic uh, kind of view on that. And maybe there's something about kind of uh, you look at those three, those three elements. And a simple way to think about those three elements is uh, three Ps. So permanence, so being resilient, optimistic, pervasiveness, um, uh, kind of not letting setbacks in one area of your life affect other unrelated areas, personalization, do you attribute it all to yourself or, or to someone else? Um, and so permanence is bad events are temporary rather than permanent, pervasiveness, not letting it spread everywhere, personalization, get that balance right. And if you can maybe think about your inner, nar- your inner monologue mm. and coming up with some phrases that help to counter that, to just remind yourself of uh, things that things are temporary, um, that actually these things are specific, not everything is bad, and that maybe this is a bit of you, which is kind of good because you can change it as well as other things that maybe aren't you. And 
kind of create some scripts around that, that can really help. It can even be simpler than that. Uh, there was quite an interesting study done on public speaking performance. Researchers like using public speaking uh, because it's discrete and you can measure the outcomes in terms of how people rate you, for example. So it's a, it's a more measurable uh, method of measuring performance in a workplace context. And they did a really interesting study where they found that um, if you just teach people to, um, uh, to basically uh, reframe or reappraise the stress that they're feeling, um, as as excitement. Mm. So rather than kind of saying I'm going to calm down, and like feeling like oh I'm stressed, I need to calm down, or actually people saying calm down, reframing that saying I'm excited, actually measurably improve their performance in a public speaking task as in terms of people's ratings of them. So people rated them as more confident, more competent um, when they they change that inner monologue. Um, and it also seems that there's an effect when we change that inner monologue uh, and look at stress as performance enhancing rather than um, performance diminishing. Actually, it seems to reduce some of the harmful physiological effects of, of stress as well. So, so, yeah, so I do recommend people write stuff down, yeah. potentially use that 3P model as a way to kind of to critique your inner monologue and, and see whether there's something there that needs to be needs to be shifted and try and create a new monologue. And you might be really surprised at the effects um, at the positive effect that can have. Yeah, I think something that surely must be well worth the investment because how many of us walk around constantly beating ourselves up, constantly just focusing on the negative, constantly focusing on the mistakes and the embarrassing things that we've said or done, whatever it is. Um, and so this reframing just seems like a very um, worthwhile investment of our time. Mm. And like I said, it could, it could feel a bit awkward, um, but, you know, it, it will pay off. And I think how many different areas of people's lives could it be applied to, you know, for mm. a teacher that's just about to... Um, be involved in an observation perhaps or a learning walk mm. if they're talking positively to themselves before that or um well you know a, a meeting or something i suppose where you're kind of trying mm. to think about well this is how i'd like it to go and you said oh i'm feeling stressed but that's a good thing that means i'm i'm ready for this i'm prepared i'm excited and, and i'm energized exactly. and I, I do really like the the got to into get to how many different aspects of our lives can we apply that to instead of I've got to go for a run. Well, I get to go for a run. You know, I, mm. I ruptured my Achilles when I was 21 and I couldn't run for what, nine months or something. Um, so yeah, now I, tough. I really try to think every time, you know, I don't really feel up to this run this evening, but the fact that I get to the fact that at the moment my body enables me to go and do that is, it is a privilege, isn't it? But how many other mm. things could we apply that to as well? Um, I've got I've got to cook tonight. Well, actually, you, you get to cook some fantastic mm. with some fantastic ingredients. Maybe enjoy it with your mm. family. What a privilege that is! Oh man, uh, fascinating stuff. Absolutely love it. Absolutely love it. I realise we're kind of approaching an hour, so I might move quickly into some of the the last three questions. Um, there's there's so much that I think was you know on on the list of questions that I um, had to, to ask you about, but but that's fine. I, you know that I'm going to be bugging you to come back on the show again, don't you, James? <laughs> yeah, no problem. Good, 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 good. But maybe before those three. I, I do want to ask you about wearables, I think, because of what we've mm. mentioned about heart rate variability and sleep and things. Do you wear a, uh, do you wear a wearable? And um, do you think it's useful for just the average person? Because, and I ask this because I've been toying with the idea. I've been thinking about getting a boot band. I've been thinking about getting an aura ring. But I'm, uh, but I'm 
worried, I suppose, that then I'll get obsessed with it and be checking it. And like you said, um, thinking, oh, well, I've checked it. It says I've had an awful sleep. So then that impacts the rest mm. of my day. So this doesn't have to be a, a, a huge answer or anything. It could just be a, a very quick, I'll, I'll leave that up to you. But do you wear, wear a wearable and should I get one? <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't actually wear a, a wearable. I wear three. <laughs> okay, okay. So, um, uh, it's uh, but you know, this is kind of part of my job and my research. Yeah. And um, so I actually have got an Aura ring, an Apple Watch, and a Whoop band. There we go. And <laughs> I would strongly recommend that nobody does that. Um, it's um, it's completely ridiculous and over the top. And if I didn't do it for my work, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do it to be honest. Okay. I mean, the reality is that there are some downsides of wearable use. There was a study done recently. I identified three. First is datification. People feel controlled by the numbers. Mm. They lose touch with their intuition. Second is economization, where wearables end up leading to, that means that um, uh, we end up at least a stress and uh, negative self-appraisal when our goals aren't met. Right. So you start to take this kind of very economic, rational view where it's like, this is my goal. These are the numbers to reach my goal. Uh, my goal hasn't been met, so I'm a terrible person. I'm useless, mm. kind of utilitarian almost. And then this third one being individualization, where um, we can rely on external motivation, um, which might undermine uh, the pers- our personal drive. And those kind of terms were from the paper. They don't necessarily, I don't think necessarily the best terms, but they were three of the drawbacks. Now, the flip side of this is I think if they're used in the right way, they can actually help to achieve the opposite, which is that um, it can help to train our intuition. Mm-hmm. So um, you can get this awareness of how much you're actually sleeping, if it's, assuming it's accurate, um, and do a bit of an experiment, as I said, to see whether caffeine's having a positive or negative effect. Um, actually, rather than kind of seeing goals as something that we never meet, and like uh, uh, if we set realistic targets, it can actually be an encouragement for some people. It's just to get a few more steps in the day, for example. Uh, and actually, um, it can support your personal drive through the gamification um, of uh, uh, of those technologies. So in general, I'm I'm a fan of wearables, but They've got to be used in the right way at the right time. Also recognize that for some people, they're a nightmare. There was this really interesting study done where they showed that um, basically uh, uh, it was three case studies of people who became so obsessed with their data. There was this guy who was spending 16 hours in bed just so his wearable would show eight hours of sleep um, because it wasn't tracking correctly. So with those caveats, wearables, I think, are positive for measuring sleep duration and also potentially looking at your physiological recovery during sleep with HRV, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast. And so if you're curious, encourage people to do a bit of an experiment and see. But um, but yeah, I, I guess even despite all my work in the space, I'm kind of agnostic. I think okay. it can be good, sometimes not so good. Interesting, interesting. I think a couple of them have got kind of a, a try it for 30 days for free. So yeah, maybe I'll just try it, see what happens. <laughs> Sounds like a good plan. Okay, cool. Right, three questions, uh, kind of not quite rapid fire, but just three quite short questions that you can take as you wish that I ask at the end of every episode. And the first question is, what's one lesson that you wish you'd have been taught when you were a child? Yeah. That's it. I'm pleased you asked me that in advance, so I had a bit of time to think about yeah. it. But um, I know that this concept has been critiqued academically to some extent, but I wish I'd been introduced to the concept of having a growth mindset earlier. Right. Uh, you know, that belief that our individual's abilities, intelligence, talents can be developed and improved with dedication, effort, learning strategies. Because in school, I was quite a quick learner, and um, I found that learning came to me very naturally. So from a young age, a lot of teachers said I was clever and I was talented. Um, and the problem was, was that those traits got reinforced so much that when I encountered some difficulty, I was like, oh, well, they were wrong. 
I'm stupid and not talented. And it took me a while to realize that actually you get better through effort and persistence. And um, just because I didn't get something straight away didn't mean I could get it and get better. And uh, so I you know, wish I'd learned that a little bit earlier, I think. Um, uh, it's probably how I'd uh, respond to that. And the second question is, what's one habit I can add to my life or even a habit that I can take away from my life that can help me feel great? Yeah, unsurprisingly, prioritize sleep. Nice. Sleep at least seven hours, make your sleep time and wait time as regular as possible. Stop drinking caffeine after midday. Simple. And I think this is the question that I'm most looking forward to asking you, which I'm yeah, mostly interested to hear what you, what you recommend. Um, what's one book, if you could buy everyone in the world, one book, what would it be? Mm. It's a good question. It's a, it's a really good question. And it's like, if it's everyone in the world, you've got to think about a lot of different age groups, right? Yeah. And, uh, and so that was what kind of stumped me a little bit initially. But, um, I mentioned that we lived in France and so I've got a big affinity for, for French culture and, um, there's a book called um, uh, uh, Le Petit Prince, uh, The Little Prince, by uh, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. And uh, it's a novella, which was originally published in French uh, in 1943 and translated now into more than 300 languages and dialects. And so it's one of the most translated and best-selling books in the world. And on one level, it's a book about a young prince from this distant asteroid who embarks on this journey through the universe, encountering different inhabitants, different planets, learning valuable life lessons. Um, and, and that's the key, really, is that on the way, he learns these lessons about love, about friendship, about true meaning, um, uh, maybe even about the meaning of, of existence. Mm. And, um, and so, you know, I think that um, it's a great story that could be enjoyed by kids. You could read it to them at bedtime. It's an adventure. But actually, there's some deeper meaning there. And actually, I think, you know, those life lessons of, of love, of friendship, um, uh, of, of really trying to find uh, meaning uh, uh, are really something which I think a lot of people resonate with, um, you know, particularly now. So that would be my my recommendation. No, I'm, I'm adding it to the list for sure. Um, and I keep telling myself that I, I want to read more fiction, but then the the power of fiction to kind of help us understand human behaviour, to get us thinking about spirituality, all these different things. It, yeah. it has a real power there, doesn't it? And I I, I don't know about you, but I find that I'm, I just so easily get drawn to the nonfiction text. I just want to find mm. out about psychology and, um, you know, nutrition and things. Um, but I know how much value there would be in reading more really good mm. fiction. So I really appreciate that recommendation, James. Thank you. You're welcome. And of course, thank you for your time. Um, I appreciate it so much. I would love for you to come back on the show again to, to talk more about this. Um, yeah, it, it's been a, it's just been a, it's been a pleasure, and I'm really looking forward to sharing this episode. Oh, thanks for the opportunity. It's been really great to speak with you. Thank you for tuning in. I really hope you found my conversation with James insightful. If you did enjoy the episode, please, as always, share it with friends, family, and colleagues who you think would find it useful. And of course, you can also support the podcast by following and rating the show on whichever app you're listening on. Thank you again, and I look forward to bringing you another episode soon.